You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. Exodus 20, beginning at verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, when all the people saw the thunder, and the flashes of lightning, and the sound of the trumpet, and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid, and trembled, and they stood far off. and said to Moses, you speak to us, and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Please bow with me for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we come before you now. And we desire to offer you right worship from our hearts is an act of faith in the name of Jesus Christ. Please convict us, Father, of our sins. Teach us to honor you even better as we seek instruction from your law. Open our hearts to receive it, not with resentment, not with questions towards you doubting your character or your goodness, but in good faith desiring to bring much honor to you with hearts of children that are tender and pliable and meek before you, O God. We pray, O God in heaven, that you would convict the lost sinners among us, that they would come to Jesus and be saved, be filled with the Holy Spirit of God and know the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Please, Father, grant an anointing upon the preaching and hearing of your word this morning. Amen. We're in the second commandment this morning. I established last week, looking at the Ten Commandments, we looked at the First Commandment last week, and established that the First Commandment is the leader of the others. It paves the way for the other commandments. 
It establishes loyalty to God is our first and most important loyalty. Our primary loyalty is to God. And so that is what the first commandment establishes. It's the flagship of the Ten Commandments. If the Ten Commandments were a naval fleet, the first commandment would be the flagship of the naval fleet. All the other commandments come within the wake of the first commandment. Loyalty to the one true God. Loyalty to the one true God. Now, the first commandment tells us who to worship. Tells us who to worship, which is most important. The second commandment tells us how to worship him. The first commandment tells us who to worship. The second commandment tells us how to worship him. Its wording is perhaps among the most terrifying grouping of words in the Ten Commandments. So I don't think there's a more severe wording in the Ten Commandments. The second commandment demonstrates the high priority that God puts on worship and is such is written in the most severe terms, more severe than all the other commandments. William S. Plumer, the 19th century Southern Presbyterian minister, said this of it, God never gave a command more solemn in its terms or in the sanction connected with it. The words in which it is delivered seem to be, have been chosen for the purpose of striking terror into the hearts of the rebellious and of giving the highest encouragement to the obedient. And he's right. This, if you are in rebellion, is a terrible commandment for you because it has pronounced the most terrible judgments upon you. If you are in Christ, walking obediently and learning to worship Him properly and desiring to give Him proper worship, this commandment offers you the highest level of encouragement in all the commandments. So, if you are in disobedience and you're not worshiping Him properly, this goes out to you as a call to repent and find forgiveness in Jesus Christ and to learn to worship Him properly and hold Him in high esteem with reverence and fear. And if you are walking obedient by faith in Christ, walking obedience in obedience by faith in Christ, this commandment goes to you as a great word of encouragement. It closes with a severe warning and a warm encouragement. A severe warning to those who are in disobedience and a warm encouragement to those who are in Christ. Now, I'll offer you the pastoral word of caution that I provided as I began my sermon last week. And that is that the Ten Commandments are searching. They, they search your heart. They shine light in dark places in your heart. 
And if you have a tender heart, you will feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God as you come to the Scriptures and the Ten Commandments are preached to you. Um, and so I advise you, I exhort you, if you feel that conviction, go quickly to Jesus. Don't bear that shame. Don't bear that guilt. But put that on Jesus Christ by faith because He promises to take that guilt and shame from you. So go to Him as fast as you feel the guilt and shame. And he offers you full pardon for your sin. So you must run to him in repentance. But today, we have two points. I'm going to do the first half of the second commandment this week and the second half next week. The first half is the actual commandment. And the second half is the motivation for the commandment. So I'll do the second half next week, the first half this week. But I do have two points this morning. And it's very simple. The first point is this. Do not worship falsely. And the second point is worship rightly. Don't worship God the wrong way. Do worship God the right way. That's my point. The reason for that, and there's strong reasons, as you read, as we read together, are available in the text, and I'll preach them Next week, God willing. But my two points are, do not worship God falsely. Don't worship falsely at all. And worship rightly with the reasoning behind those commandments to be issued next week. But you need to be concerned as a Christian about right worship. And this is a big problem. I think there is a, a triteness associated with worship. There's a casualness associated with worship in the Christian church. And people stroll into worship like it's just another event. And people come to worship and, and they check their brains off while they're singing. And they let their minds to wander undisciplined as they're in the service in the presence of the Almighty. And there's a glibness and a triteness that is, is terrible. And the first or the second commandment is a call for us to take worship very seriously. This is, this is not a casual event when we come to worship God. It is the most, I would argue, the most important gathering of the week, the most important gathering of the week, when the people of God set apart time for corporate worship. In fact, the scriptures teach us, in the Old Testament, God was present in the temple, and his glory was there. In the New Testament, God calls the gathered church the temple, that is put together not with stones and mortar, but with living stones, people who have been born again. And so when those living stones are assembled together on the Lord's day for the worship of God, he is manifestly present. And so when you're coming in to worship, you're actually coming into the presence of God. And I don't like the glibness and the lightheartedness 
that many bring with them into worship. And it's, and it's not because I find it offensive personally. It's because I shudder over what the Almighty thinks and how He receives it. When people come into His presence as if it's some type of casual everyday event. But really, we should be entering into the presence of God, which we do when we gather for worship, with the highest level of gratitude, thankfulness, and reverence for the God in whose presence we have the privilege of gathering. And so let that be an exhortation that goes deep into your hearts as you prepare for worship and as you worship him. Do so with holy reverence and holy gratitude. But here is my first point this morning, and my first point is this. Do not worship falsely. Do not worship falsely. The commandment forbids two things. It forbids two things. You want to sum it up in one commandment, do not worship falsely, but it prohibits two things. It prohibits the uses of images in worship, and it prohibits creating images of God. So worshiping God falsely is using images in worship and creating images of God. Look at verse four, 4 and 5. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to, those, to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Within that is forbidden the creation of images in worship and creating images of God. That's forbidden. Now, to be absolutely clear, there are people who are extreme, and they take this further than the text goes. We don't want to go further than the text goes, but there are those who will prohibit the creation of any type of painting or artwork, and that is certainly not where the text goes, because God had them actually make engravings and put the engravings in the temple. And so he doesn't forbid artwork. In fact, the beauty of artwork, actual artwork, is commended in Scripture, and it's seen as a good thing. Is God who creates things beautiful, appreciates it when his beautiful people create beautiful objects, but not for worship, not for worship. It forbids the uses of image in worship, and it forbids the image of God being created by man. Now, why would that be? Let's talk about the image of God for a minute. And the reason it forbids the creation of the image of God is because God is a spirit, does not have a body like man, 
And then beyond that, God has already created his image in humanity. So he told Adam, I have created you. It says in the book of Genesis, he created man in his image. So we ourselves are the image bearers of God. Meaning we are the ones who represent God, not idols and statues and pictures and icons and amulets and luck charms. God's presence is manifested where his people honor him. And that is the fullness of the image of God. When you have human beings who are redeemed and bringing honor to Christ, there the Spirit of God is bringing forth the image of God. And so to create his image or attempt to with statues or icons or paintings is forbidden because God has already created it in us. And so this is a great honor to be a human being. He hasn't given his image to cows or snakes or birds. He's given it to us and we bear it. And by the way, this is why human life is so very precious and Christians should treat human life and the human body with great dignity because we are created in God's image. It actually mentions specific acts towards images that are forbidden. So it says in verse 8, it doesn't just say don't make images and use them in the worship service. It doesn't just say don't make images of God, but it actually forbids certain acts towards images. So look at verse 5. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. So it's visual symbols of service and activity and bowing down and reverence to images that is forbidden. So you might talk to people who are from religions where they bow down to images or they burn incense to images. I've seen that done. And you may have seen that done before. And typically the people in those religions will say, well, the image is only, is only representing our God. And even the Catholics will do this. They won't say they're bowing down to the statue, but the statue is just representing the saint or is representing God or Christ. But it's the activity towards the statue and the activity towards the picture that indicates what's going on in the heart. It's this outward bowing or this outward burning of incense or this outward making of an offering to or an outward prayer to the image that is forbidden. And so God doesn't make that distinction in his word while the image is just representing me. No, you're not to act that way towards images at all. It's forbidden. And this is peculiar to God and the Ten Commandments, because all the other ancient Near Eastern religions had idols. In fact, it was very common to find, if, you, if someone's doing an archaeological excavation, it's very common to find idols in the excavations from the ancient times. Egypt had a hawk that they bowed down to, and Assyria, the dove, and the Canaanites all had, had their idols, and so this was all very common. Greeks had statues and so on. But the Bible is completely opposed to idols to the point that at other parts in the Bible, idols are mocked. They're laughed at. 
So I'll give you a couple examples here as to where that happens. God actually mocks the worship of idols. It's laughable that people would do this thing. So Jeremiah 10, verses 1 through 5, it says, Hear the word of the Lord, or that the Lord speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus does the Lord learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them. For the customs of the peoples are vanity. A tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of craftsmen. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. You see that? You're supposed to laugh. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. And they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. See, it's, the Old Testament offers a mockery of the false religions of the world because this is the true and superior religion that is being spoken of in the Ten Commandments. Isaiah 40, verse 18 and 19 says similarly, to whom... When, or to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Doesn't move, doesn't talk. They make ears on them, but they don't listen. They make eyes on them, but they don't see. They make mouths on them, but they don't talk. They make feet on them, but they don't walk. It's an idol. Or one more passage in Scripture, Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. And so the idea of making a statue or a painting to enhance your worship experience is actually laughable in the Bible. It's laughable. And the Hebrew word for idol actually could be rendered vanity, nothing, or not because it's folly. It's, it's, it's sheer stupidity. And it's, it's hated by God. It's absolutely, actually ridiculous that people would have idols because you think about what an idol is communicating. When you, when you come to the Lord to worship the one true God, you're worshiping the one who's bigger than you and who's created you. So he's transcendent and he's beyond you and he's above you and he's given everything. When you come to an idol to worship an idol, you're worshiping something that you've created. So it's pure folly. It's smaller than you. It's weaker than you. It's less intelligent than you. And so there's no need to worship it or bow down to it. And so and it's blasphemous to God because it's saying that God can't see and God can't hear and God can't talk and God can't smell and God can't move and God can't know and God can't think. And so somebody that's going to bow down to an idol or a statue is declaring all of this. And it's actually hated of God. Look at what it says in verse 5. 
You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children of the third and fourth generation of what? Those who hate me. Insinuating that the casting of idols and the making of idols is, is hatred of God. No matter how sincere. Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, for this reason, are not truly Christian religions because they are idolatrous. They create icons and images and pray to them. They are corrupted forms of Christianity. Well, you say, well, they've been around for a long time. Yeah, they've had a long time to corrupt. Okay? And they have corrupted because they've manufactured statues and icons and images that the people actually go to to pray to. And no matter how wholesome and sincere the people might be, and no matter how sincere in their religion they might be, bowing down, venerating, and kissing images is hatred of God. It's hatred of God. Burning incense to images, whether of Christ, or of Mary, or of another saint, is the hatred of God. So you say, well, I, I know Roman Catholics, or maybe you are one. And you say, well, I truly, genuinely, in my heart, love him. Well, he says here that those who do these things hate him. So maybe even you're a moral person and an honest neighbor who genuinely cares for your neighbors and helps your neighbors. Even so, the bowing down to an image is hatred of God. It cannot be tolerated, and God himself will not tolerate it. This causes, calls for a breaking away from such practices. If you, um, go to, if you understand Islam, they go to Mecca every year, and what do they do? They all gather around this massive block where supposedly a meteor landed, and they built a block over it. And what do they do? They bow down to the block. It's literally a cube that they built. And they all gather around it and they bow down to it. They're, they're idolaters. Because what does the text of Scripture say? Do not bow down to them. And that is precisely what they do. And some of you, there's restaurants in this area, and you can go into those restaurants. And they have little idols on their tables or the stands as you walk in. And what are they? They're burning incense to them. That's that, that is an act, as you walk in and you see that, the first thing you see in that restaurant is an act of hatred towards God. It's hatred towards God. I, it's something that we should loathe. And you should walk in there and you say, well, they're honest people and they're good business owners, and no doubt they are honest people in many respects, but they're God-haters. And how do I know that they're God-haters? Because he says it. And so this is terrible activity that we should be aghast at. And I personally, on a personal level, I'll just let you know I'm very uncomfortable with paintings that depict Christ for this reason. And you say, well, Christ had a body, and so we can put, paint him. Yeah, but Christ is fully God and fully man, and you can't depict that in a painting. So you're only depicting him in his manhood, whereas he's fully God and fully man. 
And so I'm, and I'm quite uncomfortable with the pictures of, the depictions of Christ even in the children's books. I find them very troubling for this reason. And this is something that saints 500 years ago would have taught readily. And it would have been common practice not to do those things. And in fact, the reason that the Roman Catholics brought in the uh, icons into their churches and started bowing down to them and praying them is because there was a generation that said, well, we can use the icons in a picture as a teaching tool. And then what do they do? Well, the few generations later, it starts to shift and it goes beyond a teaching tool to veneration and then to praying to and then to becoming a good luck charm or an amulet. And so this is, this is dangerous stuff because the people say, well, we're beyond idolatry and in the church we don't, we don't really struggle with it anymore. But you got to understand that the reason that this is constantly warned of in the Bible is because the human heart is given to idolatry. It wants to see what it worships. And so we should be very careful about what we set our eyes on is they are depictions of holy things. And what's going on in our hearts when this is happening? I think it should give us pause when it comes to how we depict Christ in nativity scenes even. Because, again, he's fully God and fully man, and you can only depict his manhood in such scenes. And I won't wear a crucifix. I won't let a crucifix in my home. I don't think Christians should be keeping crosses or crucifixes as good luck charms and rubbing them or kissing them is a good luck charm because it is all a violation of the second commandment, which is hatred of God. This is not for us. We serve an invisible God who cannot be seen. And some of you are like, wow, this is extreme. And the reason people think this is extreme is because they haven't been taught it, and people have been given to their own devices and created their own ways of worship, which God himself has forbidden. This is not extreme. It should trouble us to think of depictions of God. And this was very, you know, the Israelites would have heard this, and if they'd been influenced by Egypt for the few generations that they were in there, it would have been extreme to them. What? Is it really that harmful to have that statue of a hawk? I mean, all the Egyptians had it. Is it really that big of a, is it really that big of a deal to set, to set up the golden calf? We look at that, oh, well, it wasn't that big of a deal for them. Everyone was doing it. So we should come to this and be very concerned about our obedience to this commandment. And as I mentioned, if you go to the ancient Near East, this was peculiar to God and peculiar to Israel because it's very common to dig up in ancient excavations the idols. And because of this commandment, you've got to understand, there was, there was economic consequences associated with this commandment. Just to tell you and point out how, how serious this was and extreme it was for the Hebrews. Because the ancient treaties indicated that cooperation with foreign nations was not just cooperation with foreign nations, but it, they entered into treaty with the kings or with the gods of the foreign nation. And so if you were in the ancient Near East and Israel wanted to do business with Egypt or they wanted to do business with Assyria or Babylon, it wouldn't just be them entering into treaties politically. They would actually be entering into treaties in the name of both their gods. 
And so they enter into those treaties, it puts Yahweh or Jehovah and the God of those nations at the same level. So then the treaty now becomes higher than God, as opposed to God defining the terms of the treaty. And so this would have cut Israel off economically from other nations. They would have perceived it as an economic disadvantage. And it would have forced them in ancient Israel to develop their own economy within their own borders out of the ground that God gave them and create their own wealth so that the nations, when they saw the wealth of Israel, would have to confirm to the standard, or conform to the standards of Israel and not Israel to their standards. But that wealth would have been created slowly over time. But this is absolutely what would have happened. And I know it's what would have happened because it says in Exodus 23, verse 31 to 33, just that. And I will set your border from Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. You shall not dwell in your, they shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me, for if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. And so this applied at a national level in Israel because they couldn't enter into economic and political treaties with other nations. They had to learn how to be independent. And then the plan was, is God blessed them in their independence, then they would flourish, and then the foreign nations would want to conform to the Hebrew standard and then would get rid of their false gods. That's the ideal. And that is what would have happened had they obeyed the Lord, but eventually they did compromise. And they compromised to their own detriment when they went into exile. Now, how does this apply? I'm talking about this at a level of ancient Israel. Now, what I'm going to do now is I'm going to talk about this. I'm still in the, in the part of do not worship falsely. I hope I get through that section. But um, i got to talk about this as how, this, how is this should, should this apply to our own civil government? Because remember, the Ten Commandments are overall. How should this apply to our own civil government? Well, the 18th century Baptist John Gill said this, commenting on God's role in government. He said, kings are the guardians of the laws of God and man. And Christian kings have a peculiar concern with the laws of the two tables. And they are observed, that they are observed and the violators of them punished as sins against the first table, idolatry, worshiping of more gods than one, and of graven images, blaspheming the name of God, perjury and false swearing and profanation of the day of worship. And so Gill was arguing that the sins that are forbidden in the first table, which are commandments one through four, should be forbidden by the magistrate. So that it is the magistrate's job to forbid the sins of the first table. Some people say Baptists didn't believe that stuff. Well, Gill was the preeminent Baptist theologian of his day, 300 years ago, and not only that, he was the one who pastored the church that Charles Spurgeon eventually pastored. So what does this mean, though? And how should a civil government apply this? Well, a government cannot legislate true worship. It's impossible because true worship flows out of the heart. So you can't measure someone's heart. But... A government can forbid idolatry, which is easy to monitor. 
So in a true and just society, Islamic prayer calls should be forbidden, and the building of temples to false gods should be forbidden. I wrote an article a few, probably six years ago in the Kitchener-Waterloo Record talking about religious freedom and advocating for religious freedom for Muslims. Well, my mind's changed since then as I've become more familiar with God's Word. I regret writing, writing that article because I think that God's law has to reign supreme in a land in order for God to bless that land, which includes forbidding public acts of idolatry and the building of temples to false gods that are advertised as such. Now, you can't convert someone with the sword of the state, but you can forbid public blasphemy, and it should be forbidden because it invites the judgment of God and demonic activities. Certainly converting churches into mosques, which is going on all over the place, should not be allowed. And if people want to immigrate to a Christian nation, they shouldn't be bringing their false religions with them. When I used to live in Cambridge, there was a big park in Cambridge, and every year at Ramadan, literally hundreds of Muslims in their Muslim, Muslim men in their Muslim garb would gather in that park and bow down at Ramadan. It was, it was terrifying to see. But it was a public act of blasphemy against God. And we've been taught an extreme form of religious pluralism, but that's clearly not working. This religious pluralism that we're living in is an invitation of the demonic and the creation of public blasphemy. And what true Christian pluralism will do and true Christian liberty will do is it simply means that every Christian denomination is welcome to worship God as they interpret the Bible. So Anglicans and Baptists and Reformed and Presbyterians and Congregationalists, that's true religious pluralism, each flourishing within their own churches, but coming together to manage the public sphere in the name of Jesus Christ. Christians will always have their differences, and the people can decide that, but the multicultural vision of all the religions of the world holding hands, lighting candles, and singing kumbaya is creating a new religion which declares all religions as equal, and that is blasphemous. The state cannot mandate worship, but the state can forbid and prohibit blasphemy. And you say that, oh, they, that, that's wrong. Blasphem the blasphemy laws exist all over the place. Go and burn a gay pride flag, and you'll be charged with hate speech. It's a blasphemy law, because that's the new religion. And so, this is the prohibition against false worship. The prohibition against false worship. And you notice how the, the second commandment is structured. It's not written, you shall. It's written, you shall not. Because you shall not is how the state can enforce it. You shall is how you apply it to your heart, which the state can enforce. So the state can enforce, you shall not, don't worship idols, but they cannot enforce, you shall, because that flows out of the heart. However, as I already noted, as I began this series on the Ten Commandments, that when a prohibition is given in the Ten Commandments, the, the alternative, positive command is also expected. So if the Bible says, you shall not bow down towards idols, you shall not have false worship, that means that you're commanded to have true worship. Which brings me to my second point. 
The first point was living in the abstract. If we lived in an ideal world, what would it look like? Well, we don't live in an ideal world. But as we bring it down to reality, how does this apply to you? And how it applies to you is you must worship God properly. You is an individual. The command is a negative, so that's easy to apply to civil law, but the positive command to worship God rightly is a command that springs from the heart. Do not worship falsely comes from the commandment to worship rightly. If the positive is true, or if the negative is true, the positive is also true, and if the positive is true, the negative is true. The positive in this case cannot be enforced like the negative can, but the positive, although it cannot be enforced in the civil realm, is enforced by God, and he will judge people on the day of judgment for disobedience to it. And you say, well, how, is the, how do I know the positive is true? So if the negative commandment is you shall not make for yourself a carved image, forbidding false worship, how do I know that the positive you shall worship God rightly is true? I know the positive is true just because that principle is embedded in the Ten Commandments, but moreover because Jesus said just that. In Matthew 4, verse 10, Jesus said, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him alone you shall serve. So what does the second commandment say? Don't create idols, don't bow down to idols, don't serve idols. What does Jesus say? Worship God alone and serve Him alone, which is the positive expression of a negative commandment. So this is for you. We can only worship him as he commands. And this is serious business. You say, how do I know it's serious business? Well, in Leviticus 10, Nadab and Abihu brought strange fire to the Lord as an act of sincere worship, and God killed them. So they, they worshiped God wrongly, and he struck them dead. In 1 Samuel 13, Saul offered sincerely an unauthorized sacrifice to God, and God removed the kingdom from King Saul. In 2 Samuel 6, Uzzah touched the Ark of the Covenant to sincerely keep the Ark of the Covenant from falling into the mud, and God killed him for it. What's the, what do we learn from that? Is that figuring out how to worship God rightly is serious business. It's no joke, and in fact, it's a matter of life and death. That's what we learn from that. No matter how sincere you are, Worshiping God in a way he is not commanded is deadly serious. I've heard people say, well, I mean, I don't worship God on, uh, at church on Sunday. I worship him my own way, and I worship him just as much on the golf course as you do at church. Well, what do you think he thinks about that? That's not his worship. That's doing what you want to do, not what he's commanded you to do. I've heard people say all kinds of things like that. No matter how sincere you are, worshiping God in a way he is not commanded is deadly. He is holy, and we can only approach him on his own terms, otherwise we might die. And by the way, if you want to know why we've taken our changes to the Lord's Supper so seriously, this is one of the reasons. Because we want to invite the blessing of God by doing things the way he has commanded us to do them. And in fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 that some in the church were sick and dead for not taking the Lord's Supper properly. Now, in that case, he was speaking of sin in their lives, 
But nevertheless, the principle applies that we can only come to and worship God the way he's commanded us to. And that's it. Our worship services must be designed according to Scripture. The seeker movement has been a death sentence for the next generation. You know, the seeker movement designed worship services for what? For, for lost people. And what is the, we'll talk about this next week, but what does this do? Worshiping God wrongly, what does it do? It visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. What does it do? It invites curses on your children. So that as you worship God falsely, your children learn to worship God falsely, and that leads them into apostasy. And this is a good reason why there's a many number of churches that don't have young people worshiping because the older generation invited the judgment of God on the church and taught the younger generation how to do it wrong. And they haven't instilled a fear of the Lord. And it was casual and trite and glib and man-centered and unholy. And it invites the curse of God onto the third and fourth generation. We'll talk about that more next week. You know, all this business about churches having fog machines and plays on the platform and lights and incense and candles... That's not what he's asked for. That's what men want. That's all designed to draw a crowd. And if you want to worship God rightly, you ought to come to him the way he wants you to. I don't understand this mentality. Well, we got to do something to win the next generation, and that something that is done to win the next generation invites the curse of God upon them. What does God want from us? Well, he wants the reading of his word. He wants the preaching of his word. He wants baptism and the Lord's Supper celebrated properly. He wants the singing of hymns and psalms. And as we have learned over these last few years, he wants the gathering. And so the whole idea that we can, well, what do you think it is doing to the next generation? When churches all across this country have said, it's okay to worship God on Zoom. What is going to happen to the children? And in fact, one of the reasons, personally, I wanted to take the stand that I did early on against the government that we did take as a church is for the sake of the children that they would learn what true worship is as they see their moms and dads suffer for it. What lessons would have been lost to our children if we taught them that we can worship God how we want to? This is serious, and, it, and that's embedded right in the commandment, as we will learn next week. You, you, you know, you, you should really take the, you should sincerely come to God the way he wants, with reverence and humility and intelligence, like the the. The charismatic movement and the level of chaos and the lack of intelligence that goes into some of the stuff that goes on and the emotiveness. I've got nothing against emotion, but if that's what's driving it and you check your brain at the door, it is a problem. God wants us to come to him and use our minds. You should be 
looking at the words and singing the words of the worship song and your mind should be engaged in a thoughtful way, even as it should be engaged in the preaching of God's word in a thoughtful way, trying to figure out the flow of thought and the argumentation that's involved and the application that is derived from it. Worship services are said to be orderly, according to God, to sing. Some say, I don't like to sing. And, and, well, what does God want from you? He wants you to sing. Say, I don't have a good voice. God still wants you to sing. I don't have a good voice either. That's why I sit at the front. Okay? But God, this is what he wants. And, and it should be offered in faith, offered through the merits of Jesus Christ by the power of his Holy Spirit. We ought to come to Christ, our God, through Christ. Because he died a sinner's death so that sinners like us can enter into the presence of the holy. What a privilege that we get to worship this one true God the way he wants because of what his son has, asked, or has done for us. And then he would lay his life down so that his people can gather in this way and freely worship him in you know, you, you, there's all kinds of terrible reasons people miss worship. Terrible reasons. Baseball games, or got to catch a plane, or it's a nice day to fish, or there's a pandemic. Okay? But it, 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 you can't. I mean, understandably, if someone's legitimately sick or incapacitated, there's a, there might be a reason, but the reason that sometimes people come up with, well, I had a family thing. Well, there's 52 Sundays in a year. This is so important. And, and you know what? The, like, I really believe, I'm going to talk about this when I preach on the fourth commandment, but I really believe that our entire weeks should be structured around our day of worship. So that Saturday night is not the night to go and watch movies so that the movie's playing through your mind all night while you're sleeping or when you're in church on Sunday morning. One of my instructions for my kids, no matter how old they are, if they're living under my roof, they have to be home at a certain time on Saturday night. I don't care how old they are. If they want to move out and do their own thing, that's their business. But Because I want to instill the principle that we should come to church rested, with our minds alert, ready to meet with the Lord and not rushing in disheveled, but coming in with time to spare. Like, like, what is it communicating to God when half the church shows up while I'm giving my call to worship? What is that communicating? What does that say about our congregation when 50% of the people can't show up before the call to worship? And I, I know I, I'm coming across strong, but when you're looking at the severity of this commandment, the reason I'm coming across as strong, because I'm concerned about the honor of God. It's not because I'm sitting up here all day, they don't like me. I, I, if you haven't figured out, I'm not terribly concerned about those things. But I'm concerned about the honor of Christ who died for us and deserves what we have. There's, the worship of God must be the priority of God's people. Now, I understand some, every now and then, the kids, there's something that's spilt, or there's a fight, or whatever, and the families are going to come in late. Look, I get that. And so, 
I'm not sitting in judgment over people that are coming in late, but I am saying if it's happening regularly over and over again, and it's the same group that's coming in late, well, what is that communicating to the Lord God? And what would that communicate to your boss if you showed up late? What would that communicate if you were trying out for an all-star hockey team and you showed up late consistently, undressed for the practices, what would the coach do? How much more reverent and prepared should we be for the worship of our king who died for us and shed his very own blood for us? We should be coming to church early and ready and properly dressed with our hearts prepared, ready to give God what's his. This is, for, this is not for us. It's not for me. Okay? It's not for the worship team. It's, it's not even for the church. It's for God. That is why we gather. It's a testimony to our corporate love of God that we express to him together. It's a beautiful display of honor to our king. Who deserves it, by the way? You know, Revelation chapter, this is deadly serious. Revelation chapter 22, verse 15, says that the idolaters, the false worshipers, will find their place in the lake of fire. So it's deadly serious. And I think church has become too casual for too many. And for too many, it's a clown show. And I think that the worship of God, it, it should be springing from a joy within our heart, not... Not because I got up here and got excited about it this morning, no, but because the principle that the love of Christ is dwelling richly in us is flowing out of our hearts and we are grasping the fact that Christ died for sinners. Wow, I des he deserves it. It's not because you're embarrassed that the preacher's gonna see you come in late and disheveled. No, because you wanna give Jesus what he's due. That's what it is. The, the question, when you, when you prepare for worship and you plan your week around the worship service and you come to church on the Lord's Day, here's the question that should be going through your mind. What does Jesus deserve? What does he deserve? And at the very least, because he died for our sins, he deserves what he asks of us. And that's our worship. As we sing and as we pray and as the word of God is read and is preached and we exchange greetings and warmth and love towards one another. Jesus deserves at the very least what he asks of us, which means we don't worship him the way he doesn't want us to and we do worship him the way he wants us to. Let's have prayer. Oh God in heaven, we come to you and please forgive us the times that we don't take worship as we should and we don't approach you as we should. Oh God, would you please write these principles upon our hearts? Would we love you? Would the joy of Christ flow out of us? And would Jesus Christ receive his honor as we gather to sing your praises? And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.